Let's turn to Luke chapter 5 this morning. While we're turning there, in case you you didn't hear, uh, Dave Chandler passed away. Uh, Dave was, uh, he and his wife Judy were members here, and then Judy uh, passed away in the last year or so, and um, Dave went up to live around his children in Maryland, and uh, he just passed away uh, over the last week. Um, so Dave was a gentle guy, just uh, just loved being here, loved being here. So remember Dave's family in your prayers. Luke chapter 5, verse 27, through the end of the chapter in 39. So if you're able, would you stand with me as I read this passage from the Word of God? Heavenly Father, come upon us today with your Holy Spirit. Focus our attention upon your Word. Reveal to us what it says. Not just the words, Lord, but but how we are to live because of what it says. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. And after that, he went out and noticed a tax gatherer named Levi sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and rose and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax gatherers and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers, and the disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendants of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. He was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says, the old is good enough. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. All right, if you haven't noticed yet, even though we're not voting in primaries, it is the primary season, okay? There are people out there who are campaigning and working the crowd and shaking hands and kissing babies. It is that time of the season is that season for this and one of the things that goes on in this season is that people go to state fairs and other big events and they work the crowd and and one of the things that happens when they go and work the crowd is that uh, let's say you know Randy's running for for the uh, for president okay and I come into the state fair and I you know come into the crowd and everybody pulls out their phones and they want they you know they want they want the picture with Randy the, the because just in case that I actually would become president. Then they can tell their friends, well, yeah, this is me and Randy, when, you know, my good buddy, the president. Okay? No, that, that's good for the, the guy who's, who's nobody. But it, it, and, you know, it's good for the candidate because he works the crowd and presses the flesh and everybody thinks they own a piece of him then. But the bad part for the candidate 
is that it shows up later that this guy is a mass murderer and his opponent puts it up on, you know, here he is shaking hands with his arm around the mass murderer, okay? So there are goods and bads to association, okay? It can be good or it can be bad. Now let's apply it a little bit more to, to, to us. If, if a local politician calls you up and says, hey, why don't you come over to my house and have dinner? Okay, if Mo Brooks calls up Randy and says, Randy, you want to come have dinner with me? You know, my question is, do I, do I want to be associated with that politician? Okay, what about if it's um, uh, Jeff Sessions? What if it's uh, Hillary Clinton? What if it's uh, President Obama? And, and they call up and say, Randy, come and have dinner with us. And I have to decide, do I want to be that closely associated with anybody who is in, in an office? Okay, so... You know, it's it's possibly it could be I could be associated on a level that I would not like, okay? Or maybe the flip side is they may find out that they don't want to be associated with with Randy, okay? Well, this leads us to the encounter with Jesus and Levi, or how we term his name is Matthew. Now, Matthew was a tax collector, and you know we've talked about this before. Tax collectors were not the most popular people in the first century, okay? Now. Most IRS, as far as I understand the IRS today, they do not typically work on commission, so they're not out there uh, getting rich off of auditing us. Okay? But in the first century, whatever they collected beyond what they were charged to collect, they could keep. So if they were charged to collect $100 and they collected $500, they kept $400, okay? So tax gatherers were extorters. They were cheaters. They would come and take money from people, and Matthew, being Jewish, was collecting taxes on other Jews, so he was extorting his own people, and that is doubly bad. And then you add on to that, his name is Levi, and there was a tribe from Levi who were the tribe of priests. So it's, it's just all bad for Matthew. Okay, it is all bad for him. They were, he was getting rich by extorting his own countrymen. Typically, tax collectors were seen as greedy. They did not have any care for the widowed or the orphan or the poor. They loved, so much, they loved money so much they were willing to be despised, to be excommunicated from the synagogue, kicked out. They were not allowed to come in and worship. They were lumped in with murderers and robbers and prostitutes. And this is Matthew, okay, from Matthew's gospel, okay? This is that guy. In fact, it was, it was seen that, that they were so bad that in the Talmud, it was expected that no one who was a tax collector could possibly repent. That's how bad that they were. That's how bad that they were. Now, Matthew was picked, hired, probably with some money to grease the wheels by a local ruler. That local ruler was assigned by the powers in Rome. So when Matthew would collect taxes, he would give some to the local ruler and some would go all the way back to Rome. So uh, by that association, he was supporting the people who were occupying the Jewish lands at that time, the Romans. So he was working for the Romans by extorting money from his own people he just was a bad guy, okay? Just a bad, bad guy. Now, the Talmud distinguishes two types of tax collectors, 
Okay, two types of tax collectors. Uh, first was called a gabi. A gabi is sort of a general tax collector. Did property taxes, taxes on your crops, taxes on your wine, uh, taxes on your fruit, you know, wh whatever, just kind of in a general. Um, Zacchaeus was one of these types of tax collectors. Okay? And remember, when Zacchaeus was converted, he gave back four times what he had taken from people. So that gives us some idea of the income that came to tax collectors. I mean, it was vast. They were very, very wealthy. But there were also what we'll call these small-time tax collectors, which Matthew was one of these, and they were called mocus. Okay? And they dealt with the day-to-day -day taxes of um, uh, tolls, import, export. You'd see these guys at a bridge, at a crossroad. In fact, you see that, uh, look at verse... 27, and after that he went out and noticed a tax gatherer named Levi sitting in the tax office. Well, the tax office was not in a strip mall somewhere. The tax office was at an intersection of a highways, of, of two highways, or at a bridge or someplace like that. So that when you came with your goods, if they were on a cart, you were taxed upon the number of axles you had. If they were on your back, you might, they, you know, the two Roman guards might dig through your pack and decide what level of taxation was to be placed upon you. Okay, it was to some degree rather arbitrary, but Matthew had two Roman guards with him to enforce his opinions and to enforce his will. So this is the type of tax collector that Matthew was, and this one especially was just ripe with fraud. Because, okay, a, a Donald comes by, and, and he doesn't look well off, so, so I only tax him a little bit. And then, I, and then, and then you know, Gordon comes by, and he looks a little bit well off, and I, I, I tax him. And then the other Gordon comes by, and he looks really well off, so I tax him even more than the other two put together. Because I could. Okay? That's, that's sinful nature. We, we, we take advantage of people because we can so Matthew is sitting at his tax station, and, and perhaps, it doesn't say this, but he, he could have been the most hated man in Capernaum, okay? The most hated man in town, the tax collector. And Jesus comes up to him, and, and look at what it says. After this, he went out and noticed. Now, notice does not mean he glanced and saw him. Notice in the Greek means he fixed his eye upon him intently. So Jesus looks at Matthew, and, he, and you know, I'm, putting, I'm paraphrasing this, and thinks in his mind, this is the guy that I've got an appointment with. And he goes and he talks to him. He says, he noticed, he fixed his, got, his, fixed his eyes and gaze intently upon the tax gatherer named Levi, sitting in the office, and said, follow me. Now, Luke is probably giving us the short version. Now, it says all he did was follow me, but I'm guessing it was a little, there was a, maybe some previous discussions or uh, uh, Matthew had seen Jesus in other contexts and knew what he was about, but he comes up and says, follow me, follow me. What is Jesus really saying to Matthew? He's saying, Matthew, I want you to leave everything that you know I want you to leave all your wealth. I want you to leave your position of power. I want you to leave those two Roman guards. And I want you to come and follow me. Give it all up for me. And what does Matthew do? He goes. I mean, it's in a heartbeat. He goes. 
And that's exactly what Matthew did. He left everything and followed Jesus. Now, one of the, let's never, let's, let's get, make sure it's out of our minds. No one is too sinful to follow Christ. No one is out of the reach of Jesus Christ. I mean, perhaps you yourself thought at one time, no, there's no forgiveness for me in the things I've done. There's just, you know, I, I, I know those people that go to church and their, their lives are a lot better than mine. Apparently, you didn't know everybody that went to church, okay? But so I just have no business there. Well, this is Matthew. I mean, he was not even allowed to enter the synagogue because if he entered the synagogue as a tax collector, he would defile anything that he touched. Much like a person with leprosy, if you were touched by a person with leprosy, you were assumed to have leprosy. If you were touched by a tax collector, you had to go and get clean because they, along with dead animals, along with Gentiles, were just unclean. Now, so you get an idea of how far outside of his own community he was. He probably didn't have any Jewish friends. He couldn't go to the synagogue. Probably his family disowned him. The only people that Matthew hung out were who? Tax collectors. Okay, people like him. People who had been ostracized or who had ostracized themselves from the rest of society because of their profession, because of their love of money, because, you know, this was who they were. And, and, but they're not outside of God's grace. They're not outside of the potential of a completely changed life. Now, it might look like the person you're working with is just so bad. You know, why should I even share the gospel with them? I mean, their life is a mess, okay? Certainly, they're one of the non-elect. Well, you don't know that. <laughs> our, our job is to share the gospel with anybody that we can in the assumption that as soon as they hear the message of Christ, they will believe. Because it's not us that's saving them, it's Jesus Christ that is saving them. It is the work of God. Who can resist the power of God? Who wants to resist the power of God and his saving grace? So this call to Matthew is a radical call. It is a radical call to a completely different way of life. Now understand, we are not called in this, like to the, as the twelve were called, Okay. But we are called to a completely different way of life as well. You know, we're called to, to leave our old way, to leave our old sin and, and behind, and to go and follow the things of Christ. I mean, uh, let's turn back to uh, verse 11 of chapter 5. Uh, in fact, let's go to chapter 5, verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet and saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Peter knew his sinfulness, and he knew, obviously, the holiness of Christ. For amazement had seen him, seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him just left it there and you know it doesn't say that they they dropped off their catch at the local fishmonger or anything like that they left it and they followed christ again and again we see this matthew chapter 10 we see it in ephesians we see it in colossians lord we've left everything for you the the 12 say that and and we think what what did you and i leave when Christ called us. 
Now, maybe you've always been in the church. Maybe you, you've always known Christ, and, 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 but maybe you're like me and you came to Christ later in life. What did you leave? What did you discard? Or maybe the question is, what should you discard now that you're a believer? Okay. He calls us to a radically different way of life. Why? Because you cannot serve two masters. Matthew could not stay as a tax collector. He couldn't stay and serve money and serve God. He said, I had to put it all aside that I could follow him. Now we see a little bit later, somebody comes up to Jesus, and, and he's a young man and says, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, follow the law. He says, I've done that since I was little. And then what's he say? Give everything that you have away to the poor. And the rich young ruler goes, ooh, that's too much. Okay, I just can't do that. See, he wasn't willing to have Christ as his head, no matter what it took. Matthew was willing to give it all up. Because, you know, the other, the other apostles, we see them at different times going back to fishing. Every once in a while, they'll be fishing. Or after Christ was crucified and buried, they went back to fishing for a little bit. Matthew cannot go back to being a tax collector. I mean, once you have discarded that job... It's not something that you can pick up again and go back to your former boss and go, oh, you know, I'd like to be a tax collector again. Sorry, that position's been given to someone else. Okay, it's too late for that. The old was gone in Matthew. There was no turning back, no going back. He had left without the capacity to go back to his old life. The old life was gone. Leave everything and follow me. That's hard. That's hard. You must have only one God in your life. There can be no competitor to Jesus in your life. There was a man named Ray Miller back in the 1920s. And he wrote some lyrics and he thought they were good, but he wasn't a musician. He didn't have any musical skills. He just wrote poetry. So he gave this, these lyrics to uh, old Mrs. Shea, and she took the lyrics and she, she put them on her piano because her son was a good musician and her, and her son had this contract in his possession, he hadn't signed it yet, to go and write music for NBC. He was going to be the, the guy who wrote the orchestrations for NBC and the jingles and things like that. And he, she put it on his piano and said, son, I want you to write some music for this. And as he looked over those words, the tune just came into his head. And you, you know the tune. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands. That's George Beverly Shea was the guy who wrote the music for that. And we know him through the Billy Graham crusade. But as a young man, he had a chance to really go and, and to be very wealthy writing music for a national broadcasting company but he'd rather have Jesus than anything else. Well, there's a lot more of the call of Matthew, but we're not dealing with the call of Matthew today. We're dealing with what he does right after that. Look at chapter 5, verse 28. And he left everything behind and rose and began to follow him. So what did he do when he became a Christian? Well, he threw a party. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, for him, that's for Christ. So who does a tax collector invite to a party? 
uh, other tax collectors, as I said, because he doesn't have any Jewish friends because they can't even walk into his house lest they become defiled because he's unclean. So all of his buddies are tax collectors, all of his buddies, and, uh, you know, what do you think the conversation was like at the party? Hey, man, who'd you extort this week? You know, how's the prostitution business? Oh, man, we're just raking it in, okay? Now, what's the latest, you know, the, the latest technique for getting a little bit more money out of the people who are, you know, crossing your bridge? Well, let me tell you, this is what I tried. And so that's the kind of conversation that went on. Nothing really what we might call sanctified conversation because... They don't have any interest in the sanctified things. There's no holy conversation going on in this group because they're all sinners. And, and they're all out to further their sinful behavior because that's what they do. They have no influence of the things of holiness, no influence of the things of Christ, except now Christ is there. Okay? And it's not like, I, I get the impression it was not like whatever I, I have experienced on the golf course. You know, every once in a while I'll go out and I'll play... And, and I'll just join in with a group. And then about the third or fourth hole, they go, and what do you do for a living? And then I put the bomb on them, that, well, I'm a Presbyterian minister. And they go, oh, I'm really sorry. You know? <laughs> I'm really sorry. They're not sorry I'm a minister. They're sorry that, that they talk in the way that they normally do. Okay? So what happens here? I, I mean... And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people. Okay, the other people were just as bad as the tax collectors. And they were reclining at the table. Now, that's the way that they ate. Why? Because it took a while. This is not a drive through meal. Okay, this is a lay down on a, on a, whatever they call it. It wasn't a seat, okay, where you sat at the table, you reclined at the table. And if you, if you ever read about Roman banquets, Roman banquets, this would be patterned off of, went on for a long time. And they ate a lot of food, and they, they were not above eating and going out in the back and being sick so they could come back and eat some more, okay? That's, that's the, the level that these banquets went to. Well, these guys are all reclining around with Jesus, and talking about their normal stuff, except the fact that Jesus is there in their midst. And what is he doing there? Well, we'll see that in a minute. But it doesn't say that Jesus mentioned anything in the midst of this dinner. But he had to stand out in some fashion. There's something had to be different about what was going on in that meal. Now, verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes, who don't seem to be, have been invited to the dinner, uh, were grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax gatherers and sinners? Okay, so the Pharisees and the scribes go after the disciples and say, Hey, why are you hanging out with all these sinners? Okay, because the righteous do what? We stick together. Okay, we got our holy huddle over here and we're doing good, and let's not. Let's not eat with the sinners. Okay, let's not go and eat with the tax collectors because now it wasn't just that they didn't want to be seen with them. It wasn't that they were concerned that the Pharisees, that they would be defiled. They were better than the tax collectors. They were superior to the tax collectors. What made them superior was the fact that, that they, you know, 
crossed their T's and dotted their I's and I didn't do this and I did do this. Remember that Jesus confronts the, you got, here at the temple, you've got the Pharisee over here who says, my goodness, I'm so glad I tithe and I, I, I give all this money and I'm so glad I'm not like what? That tax collector over there. And the tax collectors had a simple prayer. Have mercy on me, Lord. Who went away forgiven that day? That guy over there. Why didn't the Pharisee go away forgiven? Because he was so consumed with his own efforts and how good he was and, and everybody was watching him. And, and see, you want to see righteousness? Look at me. And so these Pharisees were like, hey, we're the righteous. If you say you're, you're the teacher, you're the, you're the son of God, why aren't you hanging out with us? And the disciples don't answer the question. Look, look again at verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax gatherers and sinners? And it's Jesus who answers. Jesus steps up, even though the question was to his disciples. He interjects and says, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We could almost put righteous in quotes because he's talking to the Pharisees who believed themselves to be righteous according to what they did. And Jesus says, you know, I could preach to the choir. Okay, but the choir, you know, this is a sanctified group up here, obviously. Okay, but, but that's the old joke. Oh, you're, not preaching, you're, just, you're just preaching to the choir, man. Well, you preach, it's the sinners who need to hear the gospel. And, and we have to look at our own lives and say, okay, how many sinners am I hanging out with? Say, well, you should see my office, Rand. It's full of sinners. Well, that's a different context and carries a different connotation than what Jesus is doing with meals. Okay? He goes and, and associates with sinners and spends time with sinners with a means to, that facilitates the spread of the gospel and the, the declaration of the gospel. And that's the meal, and that's the setting, that's the intimate setting. He goes and purposely pursues opportunities where he can hang out with sinners so that they can hear the gospel. Like, I used to know a lot of sinners when I first... A lot of pagans. I still know a lot of sinners, I being chief. Okay? But I used to know a lot of pagans. But what has happened in my life, as, as I've been a believer longer, and you, know, you go out to seminary, and there's still a lot of sinners at seminary, I want to tell you. Uh, and then you, you go and you work at church. You get surrounded by believers. Okay? And I lose touch with non-believers. And I think, well, well, when was the last time I purposely went and pursued non-believers? I mean, not just came across at the dry cleaner or at the bank, but purposely went and pursued a conversation dealing with the things of Christ. When was the last time I invited non-believers to lunch? Uh, it was, I had to go back a while. Okay. So that's the challenge for each of us. When was the last time we went and purposely associated with non-believers in a, in a time of that, that was relaxed in a time that used a meal to facilitate the declaration of the gospel. When was the last time we did that for that specific purpose? So that's, that's dependent upon each of us to act in that fashion. Okay. Be, why? Well, that's the sick people. Those are the sick people. 
You know, we have the message of healing. We have the things that heals their greatest needs and heals their hearts. But hanging out with sinners carries the fact of association with sinners. I had a buddy back in seminary who was a Methodist guy, and he, while he was a student, he was serving a small Methodist church in western Pennsylvania. And he was new, and he was a bachelor there, and he could cook, he could make coffee, and he could grill a hot dog and grill a hamburger. And that was the extent of his culinary skills. So there was a member at the church who owned the only bar in town, and they also served food there. So he ate at least one meal a day at the bar in town. And it took about three months before word got out within the congregation that he was an alcoholic. Okay? Why? Because he was at the bar every day. We saw him there. Now, it didn't matter that he was building relationships with the regulars at the bar and who had no, they weren't Methodists, they weren't believers at all, they weren't anything. Uh, they were good pagans who needed to hear the gospel. But the people were upset that he was hanging out with sinners. See, that, uh, something wrong with that. Something wrong with that. See, but that's where the sinners are. Well, the Pharisees hated Jesus. They hated him for redefining them, not as righteous, but as sinners. And people don't like that today. I mean, how often do we find that a sin has been redefined? That we don't call it a sin anymore, we call it normal. Or we don't say, oh no, that's, that's bad. I mean, how many things that, that 50, 10, 50, 100 years ago were out of the norm, were terrible things to do, were sin? And now, well, they're just so much part of society, we don't even call it that anymore. In fact, it's turned around that we who might call those things sins, we're the ones who are out of step. We're the ones who are a danger to society. That's the way it's come. They hated Christ because he was merciful. They hated Christ because he was the physician who had the answer to sin. James quotes Isaiah in his letter. God gives grace to the humble, but he rejects the proud. He rejects the proud. Look how righteous I am. You get rejected that way. Friends, J.C. Ryle said that no two Christian gets to heaven by themselves or goes to heaven by themselves. We always want to take people with us. Okay? We always want to take people with us. So where are the people who need to hear the gospel? And how can we facilitate that relationship? Are we... Are we willing? Now, understand, that there are dangers in this. There are dangers that somebody will come up and say, hey, you're an alcoholic because you're always hanging out in the bar. That's what the pastor faced. Or to Jesus, you know, why are you hanging out with all those unclean tax collectors? Because they need to hear the gospel. They need the message of healing. They need the message of truth. They don't know it. They don't understand it. But we're the ones are there to declare it and unless we're in the midst of them we will never be able to declare it to them so that's the challenge for us today we're going to structure our lives in a way that purposely puts us in with sinners for the purpose of declaring the gospel to them jesus this is just the first of the meal stories he uses food again and again as a means to facilitate that association and relationship Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we, we think of food, and, and sometimes it's a necessity, sometimes it's a great joy, but we see it used here as a means, as a means to put people at ease, as a means to gather, as a means to facilitate conversation. And Lord, you have placed within us this great treasure. I mean, we're just clay pots. There's nothing special about us, but it is this treasure that you've placed within us that is so special that we're not to keep to ourselves. Lord, these things that we see from from how Jesus acts, and if we're going to apply them into our own lives, these can be very tough. They can be scary for us. Uh, That means sometimes we have to go beyond what we're comfortable with. We have to pursue people that we may not normally even want to hang out with. But yet that is the call of the gospel. Make us wise, make us strong, make us not afraid. For the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. So let us live like it is. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.